You can actually Google coffee cup theology and receive millions of hits. There's even a coffeecuptheology.com subtitled, Reading the Bible One Cup at a Time. Now, I drink a lot of coffee, but that would take a long time to make your way through the Bible one cup at a time. But I did do some surfing, and here are a few of my favorite theological coffee cups. This one, no, the door was fine, I'm just fixing your theology. <laughs> Martin Luther, 1517. The next one, but God, when God backspaces on the period and makes it a comma. I don't know what it means. <laughs> then my favorite, catch up with Jesus. Let us praise and relish him because he loves me from my head to my toes. I don't even know what to do with that. Don't buy it for me. I, I will throw it away. <laughs> Coffee cup theology is a bit of a challenge. Same can be said of, well, T-shirts and uh, tattoos. What, what do I mean? Coffee cup or T-shirt or tattoo theology is often uh, print, simply printing a verse somewhere on your body, on your clothes, or on your cup without regard to context. In fact, verses are often read and applied without context. You can make them say whatever you want. Some of the perennial favorites are, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46. On every other coffee cup, as I look this up, every other one, be, I mean, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Next, with, with God, all things are possible. And last, certainly not least, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Amen. Those almost sound more like motivational speech than Scripture. Of course, you can always add one more. From our text today, 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. What does that mean? You see, the challenge, again, is taking verses out of context and making them fit your narrative, fit your particular need of the moment. Now, it is true that sometimes the truth extracted may be right, but it's not actually what the verse is saying. We say it something like this, right truth, wrong address. You use a verse to say something that may be true, but it is not what the verse is actually saying. We must be faithful to the Word of God. It's one of the things that I actually love about going verse by verse through the Bible. We call that expositional uh, besides forcing us to cover all of Scripture, uh, uh, including those difficult passages, ones that if we were poking and hoping, we would never pick, it forces us to take verses, you see, in their context. For example, the, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is not carte blanche to do anything and everything I want. Run faster than a speeding bullet, be more powerful than a locomotive, leap tall buildings in a single bound. 
Rather, it means I can be content in whatever circumstances I find myself under God's good and sovereign care. I mean, life is hard, but I can find contentment in Christ. I can do all things, even find contentment through Christ who gives me strength in the midst of life's great challenges. You do understand Paul wrote that verse from prison. Which brings us to our text in our continuing study of 1 John, which does include the verse, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You cannot, you should not wrench that verse from its context and apply it willy-nilly to to whatever you want, (laughs) walking into a haunted house. No fear. (laughs) Go ahead. Preparing and delivering a speech in your speech class. Going on that first date with that special someone, I need not fear because God's perfect love casts out fear. I really can't jump out of a plane with or without a parachute. Is that what John writes? Is that what he means? Regardless of the coffee cup, I was writing my sermon on Friday. I'm not making this up. I was writing my sermon on Friday and took a moment, just a moment away to look at Facebook I love Facebook. <laughs> I, I know it's a, uh, that's become the, uh, the, the boomer generation thing, but, but I still love it. Someone had posted a song that very day that they called Anointed Singing with the following words sung with great passion to the hoots and hollers of the audience present. Here it is. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so I could stand and sing, I am a child of God. That that may actually, it was just the chorus, that may actually be a fine song, but what exactly does it mean? I mean, it seems like you're just stringing a bunch of verses together without context. Now, let's read the truth in its context. But before we read it, let's, since it's been a few weeks, actually about a month, let's review the all-important context. We know by now the aged apostle John, the only one left living, is writing um, to churches, perhaps a group of churches in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. These churches were fa- facing a very specific challenge. Namely, there were those who had left the church. We've been calling them secessionists. They had seceded from the church. But not only did they leave the church, in some way in their departure, they were, they, they were denying the person and work of Jesus. They were disobeying His commands, and they were further not loving Christians, particularly those who had stayed behind. You see, it, they were claiming some superior knowledge. Not sure exactly what that is, but they, they knew the, the truth. And the Christians who remained and were, were at worst ignorant and at best uninformed. Understandably, those remaining were concerned. And maybe you are in this mass exodus. Am I right? Are are they right? Do I know the truth? Do I even need the church? Am I really a Christian or am I somehow missing it? Does it really matter what you believe as long as you believe something? And for today, have those who have left the church of Jesus Christ today 
and deconverted. Have they caused you to wonder? Are you missing something? So John writes, John writes to give assurance. Don't don't miss that. The primary purpose of this letter written almost 2,000 years ago is as relevant today as it was then. He, he, He writes to assure his readers, to give them confidence of their salvation and, and, and that they are believing right and orthodox teaching truth concerning Jesus. You remember that he gives the purpose statement near the end of the letter, just like he, well, just like he did the end of the gospel that he wrote. We saw that last week at the end of our Easter sermon in John chapter 20. He said, these things, these miracles, to include the raising of Lazarus, have been written so that you may believe. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that by believing you can have life in His name. He wrote His gospel so that you would be convinced of who Jesus is and and what He came to do, and that you can be gloriously and wonderfully saved. Then in his first letter, written some years later, he's writing to those who, well, they had already believed. Maybe they'd read the gospel of John. And his purpose is not necessarily now salvation, but assurance of salvation. He gets to the end of of the letter. It's next chapter. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You already read my gospel. You already uh, believe so that you, you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance. Are you wondering? This book is for you. But what were the things that he had written? We've said it over and over. These can be grouped into around three tests that he gives his readers to include us. We call them the theological, the moral, and the relational test. The theological test, you must believe. Listen, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh to be the propitiation for the sins of His people. Not any old religion, not any old faith, not any old belief will do. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The moral test, if you believe in Jesus, calling Him Lord, and you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, you must follow Jesus. You must seek to obey His commands, meaning Jesus will not be used as a fire escape from hell. And then the relational test, if you call yourself a Christian, you must love other Christians. You must love the church of Jesus Christ. After all, this is the new commandment that Jesus gave His disciples. No longer new by now, several decades later, and for us, a couple millenniums later. But the truth remains, we must love one another, meaning meaning the church of Jesus Christ, not reducing it to a Sunday morning gathering, but, but the church of Jesus Christ is not optional, optional for true followers of Christ. This loving one another has been a primary topic of, of chapters um, 3 and 4 of 1 John. I've told you that John uses the word 46 times in this letter alone, but 28 of those times are in these two chapters, 3 and 4. This is where some of those other famous coffee cup verses can be found. Uh, Chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed, maybe your translation has, I love it, lavished on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. And later in chapter 3, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And then chapter 4, and this is love, not that we love God, he's going to say that again this morning, not that we love God, but that he loves 
loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And, sprint, and then we get to our, uh, we'll get to our text today, and he says some of the same things. Sprinkled throughout these chapters are the two other tests of believing rightly about Jesus and therefore obeying his commands. If, after all, if he's Lord, we should do what he says. But the overriding theme of these two chapters is God's love for us and our love for God, and therefore, therefore our love for one another. He says some very strong things like, If you don't love one another, then you neither know God nor have you experienced the love of God. You see, this is a test of true saving faith. Last time we were in 1 John, we finished with uh, this verse, chapter 4, verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides uh, in God and God abides in him. So that's part of that important context. Christians are loving. They love God and they therefore love one another. So with that context, it brings us to our text today. Look, look at it with me. Incredibly, we will finish 1 John chapter 4 today. Chapter 4 verse 17 says, By this love is perfected with us. Let me just stop right there and say, not in me or in us. We make Christianity far too individualistic. It's perfected with us together. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Notice notice the plural nature of everything that he's talking about. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... There's no plurality there. He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Did you catch, did you catch the important context? Since God loves us, we love him. Further, this love is perfected, the idea is matured in us, so that we can have confidence. He said the same thing back in chapter 2. We can have confidence at the return of Jesus. When can we have this? Here in the day of judgment. There is no fear of judgment because perfected or matured love casts out fear. You can have assurance of salvation such that you need not, listen, you need not fear death or what it brings. This is, this is an important COVID passage. I outlined a text for you. Perfect love dispels fear. Perfect love, perfect love's divine origin and then perfect love's direction. Starting with perfect Love dispels fear. But, but fear of what? People are filled with all kinds 
of fears. Some probably come to your mind right now. This week, I tried to determine what people's greatest fears are, did a little bit of uh, surfing on the internet, reading articles and things like that, but it kind of depends on who you read and what you read. But, but generally, making um, most lists of people's top fears, we find the following phobias in no particular order. First, fear of snakes. It's called ophidiophobia. And if you look it up in the dictionary, that's a new word for me. But if you look it up in the dictionary, it should not be a new word for me because you would find my picture. <laughs> I do not like snakes. And if you do, something wrong with you. <laughs> Next, arachnophobia, fear of spiders. How many have fear of spiders? Yeah, yeah, they don't bother me. Fear of flying, aerophobia. Fear of clowns. Apparently, that's a real thing. It's called uh, chlorophobia. Claustrophobia, fear of closed-in spaces. Next, fear of death, thanatophobia, from the Greek word thanatos, which is death. And then fear of public speaking, always near the top of the list, glossa. Switch of language, glossophobia. Interestingly, Chapman University publishes the results of an annual survey. Every year they do this of Americans' greatest fears. In the early years, going back to 2013, 14, somewhere around there, fear of public speaking and fear of death ranked at or near the top of the list. But first on the list, the last few years, since 2018, has been fear of corrupt government officials. More recently, that has been called Trump derangement syndrome. Fear of Trump leading to irrational thinking is the way that is defined. What does John mean when he talks about perfect love casting out Fear. Does that mean that we could actually be a snake handling church? That is a 14 foot anaconda, still living, alive in Uganda. We were driving along, came across the school, and these guys had just caught this 14 foot anaconda, still alive. And well, you perhaps can't see in the pictures, there's a rope on each end. So it was fairly safe to hold it and trying to. Face head on my fear of snakes. I held it. Didn't work. Is that it? No fear of snakes anymore for you, Scott. No. By this, he writes, by God's love for us and our consequent love for God and for one another, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence. When? In the day of judgment. In other words, as followers of Jesus, we need not fear the coming judgment. You see, we understand, do we not, that judgment is coming for everyone. And since the consequences of that judgment are eternal, it ought to bring fear. It, it should. I mean, it's what Jesus once said. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him, capital H, fear God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. 
The context of that verse is that Jesus is getting ready to send out the disciples to preach the message of the kingdom, that is, preach the gospel, and he tells them, listen, you're going to be opposed. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too, but don't fear them. There's nothing, there's nothing to, that they can do to you that is lasting. What's the worst they can do, kill you? not lasting. Don't fear them. Instead, fear the judgment is the idea. By, by, by the way, this is also where Jesus goes on to tell them, you are more valuable than every sparrow that falls because God knows every time one falls. God has the very hairs of your head numbered. We know that, right? Let me give you just a little, uh, take a little aside to give you a little theology lesson here. God knows how many hairs are on your head, not because he's counting them. One, two, three. No, not because, because if he did that, that, that would imply that he did not know. Then he counted, then he did know. God knows everything. He's omniscient. He doesn't have to count. He knows how many hairs are on your head right now. How many were there this morning and how many will be there this evening? Because he just knows. Confess me before men, no matter what the cost is, and it's going to cost you, and I will confess you before my Father in heaven. So, as believers, we do not fear death as some kind of fear of the unknown. We do not fear the judgment to come following death. We know Jesus, and we know that He, that he stands in our place. He Rather, he stood in our place. Our sins are forgiven, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's perfect love casts out fear of judgment, fear of death and, and what it brings. I'm reminded, of, I'm reminded of Paul's letter to the Philippians. You know, when he wrote from prison that, 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 that time. In the last chapter, you know, he says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even in the midst of these adverse circumstances. I, I can do this. I can be content. But in the first chapter of Philippians, still in prison, by the way, he writes these incredible words. These are great coffee cup verses, by the way, especially in this time of COVID. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Do we actually believe that? For if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. What, is, which to, what are you talking about? Whether to live or to die. As if he had a choice. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain in, on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Do you see, Paul says, for, for me, to me, to live means one thing. It means Christ. It means living for Jesus. As long as I am here in the flesh, it will be all about Jesus. And to die is gain. Just in case there's any confusion about what he means when he says that, he says, I have a desire to die, or actually to depart, which means to die and be with Christ, which is 
far better than what? Than living. Do you see? For the follower of Jesus, while we don't, do not have a death wish, while we do not perhaps look forward to the process of dying, being intubated and all of that, we don't fear death and what it brings because we know that to be with Christ is better by far. And by this, love is perfected, come to full maturity with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. We don't fear it. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. That's a little bit challenging. It's a little bit uh, difficult to understand. Simply, I think it simply means that we are like Christ in the world, living lives of sacrificial love, li- living lives pleasing to our Father, loving one another, proving that we are his. We love one another just like Christ did. Remember, he loved them to the very end. Further, just as God loved his own beloved son, he loved us adopted children, sons and daughters that we are. As he is, so are we in this world, loved by God. Verse 18, the coffee cup verse, in in the context, there is no fear in love. That is, when it has been brought to full maturity such that we know God loves us and we love God and we love one another, there's no fear in love. But God's perfected love in us casts fear out of death and what follows, of the judgment to come. In fact, he says, those who fear are not yet matured or perfected in love because this fear he's talking about is actually fear of punishment. Do you see how he kind of switches that? Judgment is actually leads to punishment. It's like when I say this, if I say I'm, uh, I'm afraid of water, I'm not really afraid of water. I mean, I drink it every day. It means I am afraid of drowning. When I say I'm afraid of fire, it doesn't mean that I'm afraid of striking a match. It means I'm afraid of being burned alive. Here it's I'm, I'm afraid of judgment because following the judgment comes punishment for those who don't know Jesus. The only other time in the New Testament that this word punishment is used is in Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 46, where Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats at the judgment. And he says these, that is the goats, the unbelievers will go away into eternal, never-ending punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is a place for fear in judgment and, and punishment if you don't know Jesus. But because we know God's love for us and us and our love for him, we don't fear future punishment, you see. That's what perfect love casts out fear means. Bringing us quickly to our second point, I preach most of the message. Perfect love's divine origin. Perfect love's divine origin. It means this. It means we do not have to muster this up, this love. We don't have to produce it. This is not a matter of us doing it at all. You see, verse 19, uh, we love moving toward perfect, matured um, love because God first loved us. Notice here that God is the initiator. Don't, Don't miss that. God did not wait for us to love him before he returned his love for us. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He didn't wait for us to notice him. He didn't wait for us to surrender to him or even worship him before he loved us. He loved us and, the, and his divine love 
prompted a response of our love for him. Do you see that? Let me say it this way. If God had not loved us first, we never would have loved God. Never. Million lifetimes. You never would have loved God. Nor would we have loved one another if he had not loved us first. Do you notice what verse 19 says? We love. Not we love him. We love because he first loved us. His first love for his children prompts or produces our love for him and our love for one another and thereby proves that we know him. He is the initiator. It's the point of verses 20 and 21, our last point. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is a brilliant verse. Over and over, John calls people in this book, I know it's a little bit harsh, a little bit strong, but over and over in this book, he calls people liars who claim to know God but don't pass the tests. See, chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that is God, and yet walk in darkness, that is not obeying his commands, living it up, sending it up, we lie. And we do not literally do, we do not practice the truth. Chapter 2, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, do what he says, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. I know, I know, we're hearing that some of the major world religions that we all worship the same God, or we're hearing that it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe something, you know, faithfully and you'll make it. No, the Scripture is clear, it's replete throughout. The only way you know the Father is through the Son. It's why He came to reveal the unknown God to us. Now, verse chapter 4, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. I've said this over and over in our time together. In 1 John, you cannot say, I'm a Christian and not like the church. You, You can't do it. You see all three tests there. You cannot say you know God and then not keep his commandments. You're a liar. You fail the moral test. You cannot say that you have God but deny Jesus is the Christ. You're a liar and you fail the theological test. And now you cannot say that you love God and hate your brother. You're a liar. You fail the relational test. These are, these are John's words. I know they're hard, but these are John's words. He has written these things these three tests, not so that you fail the tests and arrive at the conclusion, I'm not a Christian, lest you are not. He, he writes these tests to us so that we can pass them and then have the assurance that we truly know God. We truly love God. This is supposed to encourage us and to give us assurance. You can right now have assurance of salvation, assurance of eternal life. Brilliant argument at the end of verse 20. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God um, whom he has not seen. It is true. We have not seen God, well, apart from 
Jesus who came to reveal God to us. But it is true that the Christian faith is a, uh, the Christianity is a matter of faith. And our faith in and love for the true and living God, a God we have not yet seen, is evidenced by our love for brothers and sisters whom we have seen, who are all around us. It goes together. John Calvin said it like this, it is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but neglects his image, which is before our eyes. Verse 21, he reminds us of the commandment, the new commandment from Jesus in the upper room, which is now an old commandment, decades old to these original listeners, millenniums old now, but one that they and we have had from the beginning. And this commandment we have from him, that the one, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Don't want The one who loves God should love his brother also. This is a command. You see, we have noted before, but to pass both the moral and the relational test requires love for one another because it is a command. You can't just get around to it one day. It's a command that we love one another. Lots of talk about loving one another. But remember, it is love expressed in both word and action. Word and action. It is not enough to say, I love you, and do nothing about it. Love without action is mere sentimentality. We prove it by serving one another, meeting one another's needs, caring for one another, being together. All of that means we need each other. There is no such thing as island Christianity. We need each other. We need the church of Jesus Christ. Again, I am not reducing church to this hour or so on Sunday mornings, but we need each other regularly, daily in our walk together as we walk toward the celestial city. I I need you to help me along the way. Let me close with yet another picture that I recently saw on Facebook. If I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church, was a photo. Gravely concerned about people who say, I'm a Christian, but I just don't have much to do with church. You are opening yourself to Satan's attacks. We need each other to to love each other, to serve each other, to hold each other accountable, to protect one another, to encourage one another. There are so many one another's in Scripture that cannot be done in isolation. I need you, and you need me.